So you can't see this right now, but we are totally giving you the thumbs down. You're listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Fly ball, deep right field. Back is Spencer at the one and two at the Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. <laughs> Zach, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I'm not sure anybody cares at this point what's going on with the New York Mets on this podcast. But what in the world was that? Javier Baez, Francisco Lindor, and others, I suppose giving thumbs down to the crowd after they experience success because they're giving it back to the fans that were upset that they have just been performing so terribly. Okay. What a fascinating, fascinating train wreck. Uh, It's like a car crash that you just driving past and you cannot stop looking. Uh, It's, it's unbelievable. You don't, no one forced you to say that out loud. No one forced you to explain (laughs) with candor what you guys were doing, but (laughs) I'm glad you did. Yeah. I really appreciate it from our perspective, content and clicks and things to discuss. So I don't mind it. We don't, we usually say we want athletes to be more honest. So that's about as honest as you get. If you're telling the fans that you're booing them in response to them, booing you. Right. And you know, the customer is always right is the old cliche. (laughs) And even if that's not the case, and even if it's New York, so you're going to have good attendance no matter what, and you're going to have fans invested no matter what. Um, I, it, it's not like all publicity is not good publicity in this context. <laughs> well, not when you have the owner speaking out on Twitter and in criticizing the plate discipline of his players. And there's probably some truth to that, though. I just wonder how much, how much benefit is actually being done. I mean, I know people get mad when the owners get too invested or in the case of the Dolans, they're not invested enough. There's probably some happy medium there. It's, it's like the, the good waiter or waitress that you don't even notice, but they're just doing their job. They, they weren't so over the top that you were like, all right, come on. But they weren't so bad that you were ready to complain. So it, it, that's what you're looking for, right? From the owner and they're criticizing on Twitter. The players are giving thumbs down. I mean, I, I, I understand frustration from a player because we've said this before. There's there's criticism. The player knows better than anybody most of the time when they screw up. Uh, Like the the fans that were coming after Yu Chang and it just completely crossed a line. And it's like, man, nobody feels worse than when Yu Chang makes the error that costs his team the game. So he realizes like when you're out there booing, I get it because you're upset as a fan. And and I think that's a good thing. You want to be invested and passionate. But at the same time, I always go, okay, well, the player knows that they, they really feel bad most of the time. I think that's the case. So there's frustration, and I get it from a player's perspective when they hear it from the fans. And if you want to, behind closed doors, say, screw all of those people, and you want to take this bunker mentality, that's fine. I think anytime you can get some extra motivation, that's a good thing. I'm just really surprised that we heard it out loud. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, winning cures almost everything, right? And the Mets were kind of barely hanging on to first place, a few games above 500 for most of the season. They were dealing with some pretty significant injuries to key players. And it's just the bottom has fallen out over the last month or so. Who would have guessed that this would lead to players versus the fans? You don't want to create a 
divide between those two groups. You're supposed to be on the same page. Uh, yeah. But it's That's it's weird. interesting to watch from afar. I know that much. Hey, Francisco Lindor is just beginning that contract. Oh, man. Is that is that a bad deal? Are you ready to say that on August 30th as you record this 2021 that it's now a bad deal? No, of course not. But, I mean, not sure you could have scripted a worse start. Yeah, that's that's pretty bad. Um, not only from, I mean, it's it stems from the fact that he hasn't produced, and then he's been hurt and not on the field, and then the Mets overall have just fallen off completely. I know people here in Cleveland, it's kind of enjoyable to kind of point and laugh at this point. Uh, the Indians have their own issues that they're working through clearly, and they're they're they they might be in the same place as the Mets when it comes time for this offseason. It could arrive faster than some other teams, and you'd much rather be in the playoff position. But I think from a broader perspective, because we we oftentimes like to pull the curtain back and talk, uh, you know, what's happening behind the scenes, or or think of it from a human perspective. And I get all of that. I'm just I'm just shocked the way that that's played out for New York. But that will be fascinating to watch over the rest of the season. We still got a month worth of of possible action and maybe more thumbs down coming or maybe different fingers being elevated. I don't know at this point. Welcome to the Selby is Godcast. He's Zach That's Meisel. what I want to say. Uh, I'm TJ Zuppi. You can find us on Twitter at TJ Zuppi at Zach Meisel at Selby is Godcast. Thank you for clicking play and subscribe and leaving us five-star reviews. We really appreciate that at Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher and Spotify is where you can also listen to this or anywhere you really stream your podcasts, we are available. And if you're looking for additional Selbius Godcast episodes, in addition to the free ones you get at the beginning of the week, we also do a midweek show, sometimes Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, whenever we can sit down and actually get it done. But that's over at patreon.com slash Godcast. Weird series with Boston, some entertaining games, some some finishes that you would like to forget. Uh, woulda, coulda, shoulda. I'm going to sit here and say, oh, well, they should have swept Boston. Well, they didn't. They only won one game. And they had to pull the the same script that Boston had pulled in the first two games to end up winning Sunday's finale. But uh, a fun series until the very end. And of course, a bullpen that fell apart. And the the main component of that, at least on Friday night, was James Karinchek, who's no longer, at least currently, on the active roster. Kicked back to the minor leagues. Was that a surprise to you at all? (laughs) Yeah, because I got wind of it driving to the ballpark on Saturday afternoon, and when I saw the text, I said, whoa, out loud, um, and then was scrambling to get off the highway as quick as I could. So did you I say, could, whoa, maybe. or did you say, whoa? Go, go full. I said, whoa, Chill. and I wasn't the old, friend of the podcast. Mandy Bell did the same thing. Um, so even if it was if it was something where you said, oh, they should have done this weeks ago or saw this coming, it's still kind of surprising based on how elite he was for the first five, six weeks of the season and uh, even more than that, honestly, almost two months. And then just that, you know, the ability he has based on last year and the year before we can get into the sticky stuff in a minute, but it's still surprising to see that um, because it seemed like they were dead set on just using him in lower leverage situations. But then the way the bullpen has kind of crumbled in recent weeks and you had the injury to Nick Sandlin and, um, he got a lot of just random guys who like JC Mejia, are you going to give him consistent work in the bullpen ever? Stefan, you know, what is Hentges' role? How is Logan Allen going to fit here moving forward? Garza pitches like once a week. I mean, it's, it's a lot of just 
I don't know what this guy's purpose is on the roster right now in the bullpen. And so that leaves the same guys, Karinchek, Klasse, Parker, Shaw, and Wickren, who you're rotating through those late-game situations. So even if they wanted to just pitch Karinchek in the fifth or sixth inning of 10-2 to two ball games, like it's easier said than done because those don't appear as often as you might need. So, yeah, it's, it was a little surprising. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see what changes. What can you try to do in Columbus that you couldn't do in the major leagues? And how does that set you up for success in 2022? Because what he's been doing the last two, three months hasn't been yeah. working. And so why don't you, can you give us like a, it's so easy. And I mean, I, I read the comments and the mentions and I know everyone just says, Oh, can't, he's not a good pitcher without sticky stuff, but it's not that simple. And yes, I mean, I mean, it, it, you can, you can use the arbitrary endpoint of when the crackdown started or when teams got wind of the crackdown coming. Um, and his numbers are ugly. They're ugly. If you start the end, the, if you use late May, if you use mid June, if you use the all-star break, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's been a rough stretch, but what, even if it's the sticky stuff plays a role, what is it that he can't seem to straighten out Yeah, I that mean, has led to this? That's a great question. And I think it's possible to put some theories together and at least I've theorized, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I've told you this. I, I think it might even take, if we're all acknowledging what the numbers suggest about the sticky stuff, that it might take just a full off season of him getting comfortable again with pitching without that. And I mean, I said it at the time when the crackdown started occurring that you weren't going to see great pitchers, elite pitchers become bad, but he's like the one exception where what was that guy? You, he must've had the best stuff on earth. If we're to believe that it, it's only about the sticky stuff. And I can't believe that that's the case. So I think it has to be more complicated than just, oh, well, he lost spin rate. And so he's no longer as effective. Really? I mean, yeah, if, if you would have said he went from being a guy that uh, had a, a sub one ERA to someone that it might give up a run every you know three or four outings or, or maybe even fewer. OK, I, I I can understand that. I can buy that as a possibility. But just to go from elite to from possible all-star to unusable, that that seems a little that that's a that's a tough stretch for me. So before I get into my theories, I'm curious what the team had to say about it, because I know you talked to Carl Willis, among others, just about some of their theories. Yeah. So obviously no one's going to just say, hey, this guy was using sticky stuff and he can't figure it out now. Right. So you're not going to get that sort of admission. And Carl Willis did say, look, generally speaking, if, if the sticky stuff didn't provide an advantage, the league wouldn't have made it illegal. So, and, and we've seen the video from the White Sox game from their broadcast and you can draw your own conclusions, but I think, I don't think it's just as simple as that because he's not the only one who was using it. Probably not the only one who was using it on Cleveland, probably not the only one using it in the American league. I mean, I, this stuff was rampant throughout the league. So why is it affecting him more than others? And I, I keep coming back to, I mean, Carl Willis wanted to say stuff about the positioning of his hand and being behind the baseball. And, um, but how, how, for a guy who, I mean, he throws two pitches, they come from the same release point from a funky delivery where it's almost like it's coming out of his ear and you've got to guess fastball or curveball because the spin was so high. 
it's tough to pick up which pitch was headed your direction. And the fastball had really good ride. So that's to the batter. It appears that it's rising in the zone and we know the curveball would just fall off the face of the earth. So if you can't decipher which pitch is coming your way, uh, you better guess correctly. And even if you guess correctly, the fastball is 97 and it's it's got some movement and the curveball is moving a ton. So it's it's still not easy to hit. But without that spin, batters, are they able to pick it up easier? Are they able to just sit back and wait on a pitch that they prefer to hit? It seems like the curveball is still effective. It's just maybe he's not throwing it. He's not throwing enough strikes. He's walking more guys. Yeah. I mean, his strikeout rate has plummeted, which is amazing because this is a guy who you could bank on two or three strikeouts an inning for his entire career up until this point. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it would almost be valuable to talk to some hitters, not that they would want to give away all of the secrets, but it seems like it's just – it's you used to go up there if you were a hitter and – I mean, you're probably like knowing you don't have much of a shot here. And now that's not the case. Well, I think it speaks to the difficulties of evaluate a singular pitch because you can look at numbers and say, oh, well, this guy's slider gets excellent results. And you could, based just off that information, make a guess that, oh, that pitch must be really good. And it probably is. But these pitches don't exist in a vacuum. They work off of each other. And I think in this case, uh, a breaking ball's numbers typically are going to be better than a fastball is because it's harder to hit a curveball. And even if you have a great fastball, most of the time, it's not going to be as good as it's not performance wise, just looking at what a, an OPS or a slugging is against it. It's not going to be as good as a breaking pitch because bendy stuff's hard to hit. And so you can look at the curveball and still say it exists as a above average pitch, even if it doesn't have the same darting, darting movement, to the dirt like it used to. But what Mm -hmm. it might do is it might allow a a hitter to pass on those um, just sitting on the fastball because before, as you said, it was nearly impossible because they they had great spin mirroring. And that is one spun over the top, one had backspin, but you couldn't tell as a hitter which was which because it happens so fast and they're spinning so quickly. And so if a curveball, it would start at the top of the zone, it would end up in the bottom of the zone and you'd swing through it or you just let it go because you think it's a fastball. that's going to make its way out of the zone. Well, now it does. The curveball doesn't move like that. And the fastball doesn't have the same ride it, it once did. So I think it probably makes it easier for a hitter to just spin on the curveball and wait for that fastball up in the zone. And that fastball is just getting crushed right now. And it's probably as a result of it doesn't have the same movement profile, doesn't stay up as long as it once did because it's not spinning as well. And you're now sitting on it. You don't have to even worry about the curveball. Now, this is, again, just my theory because I'm not in the batter's box. and I don't know the mentality of a hitter, but I, I can tell you if I was up there right now, I would anything that starts middle of the plate down, I'm spitting on it. And anything that's up in the zone, I'm waiting to crush it. And I'm just going to hope that it's a fastball and hitters are are ending up right a number of the times. And I think what's interesting is, you know, Carl had mentioned some of the spin efficiency on the fastball not being as good. And the numbers back that up. You can look at what's called active spin at Baseball Savant. And what that is trying to tell you is the percentage of, how can I explain this properly? The percentage of the spin that contributes to the movement of the pitch. Because you might have a pitch that, that spins a lot, but it doesn't maybe translate to the movement of that pitch. And depending on the pitch type, I mean, it might not be a good thing or a bad thing to have a higher percentage, 
But for a fastball, if the spin efficiency is high, that might tell you how a, a high spinning fastball also leads to a ton of, of ride, where maybe you have another fastball that spins a lot, but because it's spinning in not quite over the top fat or uh, backspun fashion, it doesn't quite lead to the same movement. And in his case, you have seen a little bit of a drop this year in the efficiency of the pitch. So what I'm thinking, again, just a theory from someone that doesn't really know much, is not only is it not spinning as much, but it's not as efficient in its spin. So if you were still able to have the same efficiency on the the spin and it was contributing to the movement or the ride or the, the how much it, it does or does not drop, you might still see better results with a lower spin, but because it's not as efficient as it once was, and it's not contributing to as much movement as it once did, on top of the fact that it's just not spinning like it once did, I think that leads to a, a kind of a double whammy there of why the fastball is just not as good. And then you just spit on the curveball and you wait for that fastball up in the zone and you tee off. And we're seeing that a lot. Yeah, I know school is back in session, but I didn't sign up for a Monday morning physics oh class. God. You asked me my opinion. What do you want from me? <laughs> I mean, this, well, is, I, this is just as best as I can do with the information I have. A good example of what you're talking about, too, is Class A, because his slider, you look at the numbers, and the whiff percentage is 44%. And I mean, he throws a 92-mile-an-hour slider. It's got great movement. And you're like, well, why don't you just throw that all the time? And he actually has increased his usage of it quite a bit. It was about 20% in April, May, and June. And then he got up near 40% in July. And it's like 34% in August. And you're seeing it's making both of his pitches more effective. Guys can't just gear up for 101 because they have to respect the fact that you might instead get 92 with different type of movement and, and more movement. And so you look at the cutter by itself and people always wonder, it's like, this guy throws 101 and it moves and like jams hit. Like, why are you not striking out 15 per nine innings? And it's, I think part of it was because guys could just sit on that. And if you can, you're, you're still not going to make good contact. He's given up two home runs all season. His amount of weak contact is fantastic. And the ground ball rate is sky high. So it's still effective. It's just, you know, guys could sit on that and, yeah. and you know, you can hit one on one. It doesn't mean you're going to hit it well. But now he's mixed in the slider more, and so you're seeing more swing and miss. Exactly. It's then in turn making the cutter more effective, and, and guys just don't know what to do. And he's well, been fantastic here well, in the think, second half. Think about it with a cutter that's moving laterally. And so a guy swings, he's still, I mean, when the bat, when you swing the bat, it's it's long. So you're going to make contact with it, but it's going to be off the end, or it's going to be jammed in on your fist. Whereas a four-seamer, where, where your movement is more vertical, the guy swings, well, the bat isn't as wide. So that's where you come up with some swing and miss or pop-ups. I'm also curious, this doesn't quite explain everything this year, but if you look at the the release point, it's a little lower than where he was at even last year. And I'm wondering, so much of what made him effective too was his deception. He throws, he at least was last year, throwing almost completely over the top. And that's not a a release point that guys see a lot of. And when you combine it with the fact that he's working up and down in the strike zone with fastball and curveball, you, you thought maybe that adds to the deception. And this year it's, it's kind of been all over the place. It went down and then he tried to get it back up this last month. 
but it's all been down compared to where he was at at points last year. Not not like drastically, but enough that mm-hmm. maybe I wonder if that contributes a little bit to the movement too and uh, getting on top of the ball like Carl was talking about. Yeah. So where does that leave this bullpen? Uh, looking for outs from Blake Parker and Brian Shaw. Alex Young. Wow, just as we surprise. all predicted. <laughs> that was a surprise. That's why, and I know you have to still cover all your innings and you you need certain guys to maybe give you three or four innings at in the beginning, but I, I'm looking at this this roster. You've got a month left. Hentges is not going to be in this rotation next season unless a lot of stuff goes wrong. He should be pitching in relief right now, like in my opinion. And, and I think other guys too. Like you got to make some decisions on JC Mejia. So give him regular work. Um, so especially with Karen check out and I understand like Sean Parker and even Wickren, you can't just abandon them because you still need to play these games. And, you know, maybe one of those guys sticks around on another small contract or non-roster invite or something. Um, but you got to start thinking ahead and thinking, how can you get the most, how can you learn the most from Sam Hentges over the next month? Or, I mean, I guess Logan Allen can stay in the rotation and you do still need five starters and McKenzie's on the shelf right now. Um, you know, Savali and Bieber working their way back and, and maybe when those, maybe when Savali comes back, cause he's throwing, I think he's pitching a rehab game on Wednesday and then if all goes well, he could re- rejoin the team. So maybe that would kick Hentges to the bullpen or something, but use these guys in roles and situations and give them the experience that will help them in 2022. I mean, we've seen enough of the Hentges starting pitching experiment to grasp that. So let's see him in the bullpen in a different sort of role in one that might be more realistic for next season. Yeah, I, I don't understand. Other than just you need innings, so you're keeping him stretched out. But it seems like they're trying to for, force the square peg into the round hole with him. Where it just makes so much, makes so much sense for him to come out of the bullpen. And maybe that doesn't have to be it for the rest of his career. I mean, Cal Quantrill not very long ago was coming out of the bullpen and you thought of him as the one or two inning guy and now he leads the team in innings. So sometimes situations force your hand and it doesn't have to be a death sentence to send with the bullpen and that's just it for him. As we've seen before in the past, maybe you just give a guy a little bit more and see if he can handle it. Then you stretch him to two innings, see if he can handle it. But get him into a relief role where you can find out if this is an actual weapon or just a guy that you have around to fill some innings because I don't, I don't think we've got that answer on him. And we certainly haven't got that answer on JC Mejia. I mean, you can look at stuff that looks good. You can look at a radar gun and say, well, that's fun or a curveball that might give you some good spin numbers, but you, I, I want to see it because the hope should be that when you get to next year, you're not going to be experimenting as much with some of these situations. You're, you're going to have a little bit more focus on winning. I would think especially if you have a, a healthier rotation. So take advantage of this time now. So which player who will start the season in the bullpen next year will wind up <laughs> leading the team in innings pitch? Um, I mean, if Emmanuel Classe is good in one inning, what could he do with nine? <laughs> I mean, even with Quantrill, do they have to think about easing up on the gas with him? I don't know about that. I mean, he's he came to camp to be a starter – and he's thrown, I think his career high was 148 a couple of years ago in the minors. I mean, maybe you ease up a little bit, but he also seems to be like hitting his stride here. Yeah. Yeah. That's t- I mean, that's what 
Francona talks about with not getting in guys' way when they're going well. You don't want to mm-hmm. step on something that's actually going really well and throw them off. But at the same time, it's it's tough because you could say, well, if these games don't matter and these guys are important to you, shut them down. Well, how does that help you next year when you're trying to stretch guys to 200 innings? Right. You can't just run away from them completely. And you said this with Tristan McKenzie. You can't just say, oh, well, you've seen enough, shut them down. What happens next year when you want him to throw 170, 180 innings and he didn't get built up this year? So are you right back into the same situation in 2022? Yep, that's a great point. And that's, I mean, that was part of the issue coming off the 60-game season is it's not just a one-year thing. You're not saying, okay, we just got to get these guys, got to monitor them really carefully this year. No, it's it's not just that, but you're going to have an off-season where, okay, you maybe you started prepping for 2021 a little earlier you went harder sooner because you only threw so many innings last year in a shortened season and now this year you've got 162 games plus a full spring training you might need a little bit more time to recover when it's over so maybe that maybe you're getting a later start in 2022 maybe it won't matter because there will be a work stoppage i don't know there's a there's a lot to figure out but i think the the bottom line is there's you have to be really careful and there's going to be a lot of monitoring going into next season too. This wasn't just a quick little one year weird situation. It's this stuff could have an impact for a while. You got to protect. I mean, how many injuries did we see across the league, you know, especially in May, June, July, you got to protect against that stuff moving forward too. So it'll be interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Nick Sandlin. I think he's going to lead the team with <laughs> hey, former, 160 innings. Former starters, so it's not that far out of the question, right? Yeah, he's and so he's Godcast guest. Yeah, see, get him back on this offseason, see what he thinks about stretching out to 140 innings. Yikes. Well, so Karen Check's going to need some coaching, uh, certainly, in the, the next month and, and probably beyond that into the offseason. I enjoyed your piece today talking about some of the coaching happening with a couple of Cleveland's, I was going to say younger players, but no, they're kind of aging. Bradley Zimmer and Yu Chang have both had some success here recently. And it got me thinking, we spend a lot of time talking about the assistant coaches, not knowing how much credit to give them when things go correctly. Most of the time they get a lot of the blame when things don't go well. And, you know, I, I laughed when San Diego fires the pitching coach. Cause it's like, okay, well, what is that going to do for the rest of the year? I don't know that it's going to make some massive changes. We've always heard Ty Van Berkeley must go comments in our mentions and anywhere else. Even over the weekend, I said something about sacrifice bunting and someone responded, Van Berkeley has got to go. And I'm thinking, okay, well, even if he's a terrible hitting coach, I don't know. He could be a great one, but he has nothing to do with the, the, the decision to bunt in these games. So let's uh, keep the blame where it needs to go. You, you want to say, the hitting coaches and Van Berkeley, by the way, is not the only hitting coach on the staff. You want to say they're not doing their job when guys don't develop. But I'm always left to wonder, you know, how much credit should Bradley Zimmer has been pretty good here recently. Should Van Berkeley get credit for working on him, working on it with the stance that you wrote about? Maybe you can go in depth there. Yu Chang, same thing. Should the assistants get more credit when things are going well? What what kind of credit should I give? the hitting coaches for Ahmed Rosario having a mm-hmm. pretty good year this year. It's tough. There's no, I know uh, your, your colleague, Eno Saris has talked about, maybe you look at a guy's chase rate and that's something where 
that's something tangibly a coaching staff can help somebody do. So maybe you look at guys that have gotten better at managing the strike zone, not swinging at pitches out of the zone, but it's tough. Where, where do you apply the credit and how much do you take away when a guy's just failing and how much is a guy's just not that good? Yeah, this is a conundrum. I feel like I try to analyze every year because, and maybe it's because we hear the whole oh, fire Van Berkeley every single season. And I, my response is, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, he is the longest tenured hitting coach in baseball, which is incredible for many reasons. I've never understood what difference, like if, if you, because you know, when, when a team gets off to a slow start in April, and I, I mean, this has happened in Cleveland many times too, and you hear fire the hitting coach and okay, so you replace him with someone internally because it's middle of the season. Did, did you just assume that the offense is going to take off? Like what, what difference is there going to be that's going to allow you to be more successful? And I'm not saying that whoever you want fired doesn't deserve to be fired at a specific point in time, but I, I just don't know. It's really difficult to assign credit and blame in a lot of these situations. And it's difficult for us. The team certainly knows more about the impact that its coaches have on players and on the end results. But it's really difficult from the outside looking in to give a fair, accurate assessment of that. Um, and I wish we could. I don't know. I, I remember remember when they fired Scott Rudinsky in 2012 when the pitching staff was just a total mess. And the next year, I mean, you had an entirely new coaching staff under Terry Francona. And I remember thinking, I think Rudinsky got fired with like a season, a month left in the season. I was like, well, what, what's going to change next month? And the team was get him away from these down. young guys. He's ruining them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the joke was on them because Rudinsky got to just go scream in his punk band. So um, I, I, I don't know. I, I know. So, so it's, it's difficult. I mean, we, what we can do is we can give examples of what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and it's not just the hitting side. I mean, it's the pitching side too. They've got Carl Willis and Ruben Niebla and Brian Sweeney, three guys who are really smart, three guys with really different skill sets and different backgrounds and different ways of teaching. Um, you know, Sweeney is, they loved him and they didn't want him to get away. He was kind of that, he, he replaced Scott Atchison in that that role of helping with some advanced scouting and just using some data on the pitching side and was so good at it that they said, okay, we got to actually add this guy to the staff as the bullpen coach or someone else is going to snag him from us. So he comes at it with maybe more of a data mindset. Ruben Niebla, I mean, he can do anything. <laughs> I mean, you, if you talk to any pitcher, and we've mentioned this, talk to any pitcher who's come up, especially the starters, and, and ask them, who's been really influential on you getting to the major leagues? They'll name him. And then I think you got to give Carl Willis a lot of credit too because someone his age – has made so many strides to become well-versed with the new technology and understanding what data points to look at yeah. to help people. So, um, And someone's got to quarterback that group too. Yeah. And that's, and that's, what, he's, that's what he's doing. You, you know how to delegate. You know everybody's strength and you put them in a position to accent that strength. I mean, when he, when he was mentioning in your article, spin efficiency, I was like, Damn, good for you, Carl. <laughs> you know, you've certainly adapted and brought into your your mindset. 
he loves name dropping the edgertronic high speed cameras. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's we can it's easier to identify what those guys do because you see the success on the field, right? And it's also easier to understand the pitching side of things because we can understand the data. And I mean, you just explained the Karen check thing using a lot of big words that go over my head and I'm sure many other people's heads, but, but that's why, and we've talked about this. That's why pitching has such an advantage because there's more, there are more resources available to you. We have just made more progress on the educational front and, and getting buy-in around the league. I mean, pitchers. Think, think about it. Zach. What I just explained and you said is speaking over your head. That's scratching the surface of what the teams actually have. Mm-hmm. I mean, the smartest guys that they have that what I just explained is like the elementary version of where they started. And now they're, they're 20 times beyond that. And they're working with that data. And the best teams, as we've talked about a million times are the ones that are able to translate that and get buy-in. And they've had a lot of success on that on the pitching side. We don't have as many of those successes to point to on the hitting side. The problem is, I don't know how many of those situations where a guy would have gone elsewhere and had success, and how many of those situations where it's just a guy that's not good enough to be in the major leagues. So the grand conclusion here is that we can complement the pitching team ad nauseum. And I mean, it ex- extends beyond that. I mean, Eric Binder and Alex Merberg are two front office analysts who um, work with Carl and Ruben and, and Brian Sweeney and you know it's basically the five of them and then they've got guys who crunch numbers in the front office all day and and you know it, it's, it's a big operation but it always boils down to the player and you need the buy-in you need remember when it became a big thing like five or six years ago when Cleveland's starting pitchers would watch each other throw bullpen sessions in between their starts and it was not a prevalent thing that teams did but it was just a way to get the starting pitchers to communicate and to notice things and to identify and help each other like, hey, maybe you want to do this or try this. And um, is that working for you? And, and that has created this cycle where that's just the norm now. And so you have Bieber helping Savali and Plesak, who then helped McKenzie and Quantrill. And it goes on and on and on. And so it's easier to praise the pitching side because I mean, I hate just relying on words like factory and pipeline, but it has become something resembling that Mm -hmm. on the hitting side. It's more difficult. Part of it is we don't have all of the information. We don't quite understand how, and it's not just the Indians dealing with this. I mean, I wrote back in May or June. I mean, I did wrote 4,000 word piece trying to investigate why this team hasn't developed hitters um, as well as even they would like. I mean, I had front office people saying, look, if we could just copy what we did do on the pitching side onto the hitting side, we'd do that. Uh, But it's not so simple. And I think everybody's searching for answers. And it makes it really difficult then to just say, okay, well, here's what Ty Van Berkeleo does really well. Here's what Victor Rodriguez does really well, or Justin Toole and the other people on the hitting team, Alex Eckelman. I mean, it's, it's, it's really tough to assess. So you can say, like, no one ever says fire Carl Willis or fire Ruben Niebla because you see the results on the pitching side. But you still don't know exactly how much influence those guys have. When the pitcher still has to be the one to understand the instruction, yeah. to implement it, 
to make changes, to work with the catcher during a start, to make adjustments. Like there's a lot that still falls on their plate, of course. And so it's it's similar on the hitting side, but it's even more difficult to really wrap your head around because you just you haven't seen the success. And yeah. so I think the the fans' default setting is, well, it's it's you can get better coaches that will breed more success. And maybe that's true, but we don't we don't know that. There aren't as many successes, but at the same time, when a guy has a success, it's not like you circle back and say, oh, well, that that's where the hitting coaches come in. Because I mentioned it a few a few years ago at a conversation with Lonnie Chisenhall. And of course, he got bogged down by injuries. And it's unfortunate because it seemed like he had finally gotten to a place where he unlocked being a productive hitter in his career. But he had to walk away at 30 because he just couldn't stay on the field. But how much credit should hitting coaches get in Cleveland for him turning himself into a productive player against right-handed pitching? You could say, well, that's just... a a factor of him just getting more comfortable in his career and, and just developing and, and, and knowing what he needs to do and, and taking it all upon himself. Yeah, yeah, sure. There is some element there of the player doing the own, putting in the own work, his own work to become a better player. But I also had a conversation where he talked about working with coaches, about working more with his lower half and trying to generate more power and becoming a more complete hitter. And it, it sounds exactly like what, you just wrote about with Bradley Zimmer mm-hmm. trying to do with, with his own uh, hitting profile and, and utilize more of his lower half to help generate and tap into more of that raw power. Uh, so do I say the hitting coaches should get some some credit for what happened late stages of Lonnie Chisinau's career? Unfortunately, it's not like, well, he became an all-star and a, a guy that you're in, putting in the lineup hitting fourth every single day. No, but it's a smaller success, and I think some credit is due. So that's always where I struggle. Because there aren't as many of, of the guys to point to and say, hey, that, that guy was truly good. Uh, he, he truly developed in the major leagues, and so the, the coaches deserve credit the way that you, you could easily do with the pitchers. But I also don't have a ton of guys like, okay, Jesus Aguilar goes elsewhere. Is it because he got other coaching that he's been a good player, or is it just because he got a chance to play? He didn't get that here. I would probably guess a lot of it's just opportunity. Giovanni Rochelle is another one where you know, he talked about hit, working with some hitting coaches that helped him tap into his lower half. And maybe that doesn't happen here in Cleveland, but he also never got an extended opportunity. Who are some of the other guys that went elsewhere? I mean, just were terrible here and went elsewhere and were great. Can you name many of them? And if you can't, and maybe I'm just not thinking, I didn't prep this in advance, but if you can't think of a ton of them, maybe it's just because the hitters themselves weren't that great. It's always going to be a gray area. You're never really going to know. The interesting thing to me is you've got such a young roster, right? And so uh, it's, it's part of it too is are these guys getting the proper instruction coming up through the minors? That's when the development is really taking place, right? Don't you need to, once you get to the major leagues, you're supposed to know yeah. what you're doing. And that doesn't mean that major league hitting coaches, don't have any responsibility and shouldn't um, acquire some blame at some points, but uh, it's tough. I mean, look at Bradley Zimmer. I mean, he, so I, I put in that story today. It was fascinating to me. I mean, his, his stance when he came up as a rookie in 17, he's crouched. He's got an open stance. That front foot is way back. The bat's sort of like resting on his shoulders at like a 45 degree angle. And then two years later, after the shoulder injury and comes up in September, 
and he's standing like a statue. I mean, he is almost totally straight up. He looked the, like Griffey. Yeah, it like yes, like Griffey if just without the talent, I guess. I mean, like <laughs> because he, he was oh he went over thirteen. He just he looked terrible, and it was it's not all his fault. I mean, he missed a ton of time and was kind of thrown into the fire that last week of the season. And then if you look at his stance now, it is totally different again. The stance is like slightly open. The bat is is parallel to the ground, but he's holding it over his head. His, his hands, they used to be kind of at his chest. Then they were at his chin, and now they're like up over his helmet. Even the beginning of this year, his stance looked different from where it's at now. So you're seeing conscious changes, obviously. What's going to get him most comfortable? What's going to put him in the best position to be able to hit the ball hard? And this is that. And that's a lot of work with Ty Van Berkleo, just a lot of work on himself. Um, So you you do see some changes. And then you've seen, we talked about Zimmer at length the last few weeks. We don't need to dive into his future as a fourth outfielder or a trade candidate or the starting right fielder hitting fifth every day. Discipline numbers away until next episode. (laughs) But I think the point is, You've got uh, – it's going to be interesting because, look, Ty Van Berkeley is sort of old school and he's been around for a long time and he's been here for almost a decade now. And it's not to say he can't work with a 22-year-old Andres Jimenez or a Gabriel Arias next season and an Owen Miller and a Bobby Bradley. and all. They just have so many young hitters who maybe could be good, but we don't know. Um so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, and not just with him, but the whole coaching staff. You don't even know who the manager is going to be next year. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I If you would have told me in 2015 that Ty Van Berkeley would still be the hitting coach in 2021, I probably <laughs> would have been surprised. Yeah. Uh, but they have also made modifications to the setup to try to implement more data and video and other things, as I mentioned, like with tool on the staff and um, Alex Eckelman kind of, he's shifted roles a few times and now he's director of hitting development. Uh, So you're seeing them sort of try to mirror at least the structure of the pitching, the the way they operate on the pitching side, but you can't just copy it and paste it. It doesn't work that way. So I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so much we don't know and there's so many, they're far from the only team trying to figure this all out. And I think someone said like the Dodgers are like the only team who maybe feels really confident in the way it develops and, and teaches hitters. Well, I think the giants deserve some credit because we've seen some, some of their recent changes they've made this year. And they have these, all these old guys that are reviving their careers in San Francisco and, and guys that were four, a players that they've picked up and have become, if not stars, just really good and useful players. So clearly they're doing something. And I think a lot of it in this, whether it's the next frontier or the frontier they're already tapping into now, it's preparation for these hitters. Um, The right data to know what pitch is coming, tendencies, uh, what a pitcher is going to do in a certain count, how they like to sequence things, and preparing hitters for being more disciplined. And knowing which pitches to swing at, which pitches to to spit on, which ones are worth 
offering at because when they're in this part of the zone, this is where you do your most damage. And how can you make a guy be more patient and willing to that that pit might, pitch might look really good to you, but do you have the discipline to lay off of it? Because you know, when they're in this specific zone, that's what you want to be targeting, or it's it's not quite the pitch you were looking for. I think there's a lot of that going on below the surface. Just who can prepare their hitters the best, and that's where those data guys come in, and that's where they've expanded the staff in recent years, and that's going to take some time. So whatever the Giants seem to be doing that has worked out really well, I'm sure everyone will just copy what they're doing. And not even know why they're copying it, but just, hey, they they don't do typical batting practice. So we've got to do that, too, and not really know why that works. And to bring this back around, if you want to say, hey, some positive changes for Ahmed Rosario this year, his chase rate slightly down from where it's at in his career and his overall swing percentage is down from where he was flailing at everything last year. And so it's like, okay, maybe some positive things there in the discipline of Ahmed Rosario, you can point to and say something the hitting staff is doing is working with him. Do you want a random Indian of the day? I do because I pulled one. Oh. Should we have a battle over who has the better random Cleveland Indian of the day? Well, I had pulled one too, but I have never heard of mine. So (laughs) (laughs) what if we pulled the same guy? Oh, that would be great. Although I don't think we did because this guy had a major league career for more than a hot minute. I think it's my turn. Go ahead. It's my turn. So you save yours. This gentleman pitched for the Cleveland Indians in 2003 and 2004. Oh, God. Logged a total of those two seasons, and I was floored. Jack Crescent. You've got to be kidding me. What? I said, you've got to be kidding me. Is it him? It is. Well, well, well. I mean, you threw that at the backboard without <laughs> calling bank, but you kind of nailed it, so... So this relates to something else. You ever play the game Guess Who? Yes, of course. Um, my strategy in that game is to not waste time by asking, does your person have a mustache? Does your person wear glasses? I just shoot from the hip. Okay. Is it Paul? Is it Susan? <laughs> there, there, sh- there should be are there repercussions for getting it wrong, or is it just the game continue? No, you just don't make as much. If you're wrong, you don't make as much progress as you could have. Okay, but if you're right, you but save you've yourself also, time. Yeah, completely eliminated somebody from the game. Well, yeah, you're right with Jack Crescent. So should I give you any of his stats, or should we just call it a day? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Tell me more about him. In 2003, he was really good. 33 games, 251 ERA. 2004, 632 ERA and 11 appearance. But over his Cleveland career in two seasons, I had no memory of him pitching two years in Cleveland. I remembered. A little bit, the one, but could not remember the second one. But a 3.53 ERA in 58 and two-thirds innings. And he had pitched three years with Minnesota before that. But that was the end of his major league career at that point. What was his middle name? Middle name is Baptiste. Jean-Baptiste oh. Cresson. Oh, so it wasn't even Jack. Mm. I'll never Good understand stuff. that. John to Jack, that one, that one trips me up a little bit. Coming from the guy that goes by TJ, but my first name doesn't even begin with T. But it's not Tiger Jr. I was going to say Tiger Jr. House. Easy TJ House. Well, I'm, I'm sure your random idiot would have been better because you, I wouldn't have nailed it right off the, the bat. Yeah, you would not have gussed him on the first try. All right, we'll save it for next time. Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, Spotify, patreon.com slash Selby is Godcast. Anything else to say? Shout out to Steven, uh, who 
for a listener who wanted a beer on Sunday and then we were hit with a three-hour rain delay and Steven didn't want to sit through that and I don't blame him. So uh, hopefully we can meet in the future and just remember, beer's on me. Leave us a five-star review. Go over to our Patreon page. Join us over there for our weekly podcast and we will deliver. Shouts also to B. Kelly, who left us a five-star review. You're the best. We're out of here. For Zach, I'm TJ. See you later this week. Bye.